Last week we began a new section in the book of Romans. We saw that after setting out the blessings of God's people in chapter 8, now in chapters 9 to 11, Paul deals with the ways of God himself. And chapter 9 began by highlighting an apparent problem. How is it that the Israelites, who seem so important to God in the Old Testament, can be largely rejecting God's Messiah? God promised to bless Abraham's descendants. So how come many of them are missing out on the blessing of salvation through Jesus? Paul's answer to that apparent problem was that God has always chosen freely who he will bless and bring into his family. Paul showed that by pointing to two sets of brothers from the Old Testament. Ishmael and Isaac were both children of Abraham. God chose Isaac to inherit his promises and he did not choose Ishmael. And the twins, Jacob and Esau, were both children of Isaac. God chose Jacob to inherit his promises and not Esau. Was that because Isaac and Jacob were better than Ishmael and Esau? No. The point is that even among Abraham's descendants, God is free to choose who will inherit his blessings. We saw that one writer summed up Paul's point by saying what counts is grace, not race. The application then was we shouldn't be surprised that many Jews reject Jesus or that many people brought up in church reject Jesus. God is not forced to bring certain people into his family. And he's not forced to avoid certain other people. God makes his choice freely, according to his own plans and purposes, not according to our plans or expectations. That was last week. And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to go further. Having told us God's choices are made for his own purposes, he now touches on the question, what are those purposes of God? What is God aiming at in the choices he makes? What is God's goal? If you haven't already opened your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. In the church Bible, it's page 1136. Or in the large print, 1757. We're going to pick up this morning at verse 14, and I'll read down to verse 29. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. This is God's word. And our passage this morning divides in two. In the first section, that's verses 14 to 21, we learn that God acts for the sake of his own glory. We've seen before in Romans that as Paul writes, he will anticipate people's objections to what he's saying. That's what he's doing in verse 14. If you remember from last week, verse 13 included a pretty striking quotation from the Old Testament. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Meaning, I chose Jacob to inherit my blessing and I did not choose Esau. And we said that in this context, the words love and hate have less to do with God's emotions toward these men. Instead, they describe his actions toward them. He loved Jacob by choosing him and hated Esau by not choosing him. And verse 11 told us God did this before they were born or had done anything, good or bad. Now, having quoted that statement from God, Paul knows how some people will respond. They will respond by saying, God is unjust. It is not fair for him to do that. Maybe some of us feel the same. 
And of course, the reason we feel that way is because we think God ought to make his choice based on something in Jacob and Esau. We may think he should have chosen them both simply because they both came from the same father, Isaac. In that case, we're arguing God should choose them because of their race or because of their privileged background. Or we may think God should have chosen based on the performance of Jacob and Esau. So we might feel it's okay for God to reject Esau and bless Jacob if Esau turns out to be a scumbag and Jacob turns out to be a decent sort of lad. But to do the accepting or rejecting while they're still in the womb, that's unjust, we might think. The point is, whether we think God should make his choice based on human background or human performance, many people think it's unfair for God to ignore human factors altogether. But Paul wants to dispute that belief. He wants us to stop and ask ourselves, why do we think it's fair for God to make his choice based on human factors and unfair to make his choice based on his own eternal purposes? Or to put it another way, why do we think the choices of the creator must be ruled by his creation? Paul wants us to consider our perspective. If our perspective is that humans are the center of the universe, if we assume that everything revolves around us, then sure, God better cater to us. But if we see that God himself is the center of the universe, then it's perfectly fair that his purposes and his goals take first place in all that he does. It's perfectly fair that God acts for the sake of his own glory in all that he does. And in verses 14 to 16, Paul says that is in fact what God does. He acts for the sake of his own glory in showing mercy. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The quotation in verse 15 is taken from the book of Exodus. It's from the passage we read earlier this morning. And it's important to know the context of the words Paul is quoting here. In the previous verse in Exodus, Moses said to God, show me your glory. Now maybe Moses was asking God to pull back the curtain of heaven and let him see God on his throne. We're not told what Moses had in mind by seeing God's glory. But notice again how God responds to Moses. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So notice what has happened. Moses said, show me your glory, God. And God replies by saying, at least part of my glory is that I am free to show mercy to whom I choose to show mercy. There may well be other things involved in God's glory, but at least part of his glory consists in his right to save and bless as he decides to save and bless. Unconstrained by anything in the men and women he created. Any birthright or any performance they might boast about. That right is part of what makes God glorious. And so, what was God's purpose in choosing Jacob and not Esau? At least in part, the purpose was to show his glory. The glory of the God who has the right to choose. The right to show mercy to whom he decides to show mercy. And so Paul says in verse 16, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God's right to choose freely is part of his glory. When he exercises that right, he is displaying his glory. If you're a Christian and you ever wonder, why am I a Christian when my brother or my neighbor isn't? If you ever wonder that, the answer is not because you're more worthy than other people. At least part of the answer is, you are a Christian so God can display his glory. In a world filled with unworthy people and only unworthy people, God has shown his glory by choosing to show mercy to some of those unworthy people. And you are one of those unworthy yet chosen people. So far, so good. But that does raise a question. If God's glory is displayed in freely choosing who he shows mercy, what about the flip side? Is his glory also displayed in freely choosing who he does not show mercy? You and I might not want to go there. We might feel that's a question better left unasked. But if that's how we feel, the Bible does not agree with us. Look at verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. These verses tell us God acts for the sake of his own mercy, not only 
the sake of his own glory, not only in showing mercy, but also in hardening. Before we get into this, remember, we're all born in a state of rebellion against God. We're all born deserving his judgment. We're born under a death sentence. The Bible insists on that. So God's mercy involves melting the hard, rebellious heart a person is born with. And God's hardening involves reinforcing the hard, rebellious heart a person is born with. Paul gives us the example of God's hardening of Pharaoh. And this is the Pharaoh we learn about in the book of Exodus. By the opening of Exodus, Abraham's descendants are living down in Egypt. They have grown there into a great nation, the Israelites. But they are made slaves in Egypt, and God sends Moses to lead them out of their slavery. But it doesn't happen easily. It takes a series of ten plagues inflicted on Egypt before Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. Frogs, boils, hail, locusts, and so on. What was the point of all that? On one level, the answer seems straightforward. The ten plagues were necessary to break down Pharaoh's resistance so he'd let Israel go. But that's not quite the answer the Bible gives us. The words Paul quotes here in verse 17 are taken from Exodus chapter 9. Exodus 9 tells us that partway through the series of plagues, God says to Pharaoh, I could have ended all this before now. I could have wiped you away at the very start of all this. But... Then come the words of verse 17. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says this situation is about more than just getting some slaves out of Egypt. That's part of it. But above that is my purpose to display my glory in this situation. And my glory is more fully displayed, not in quietly and quickly wiping you away, Pharaoh, but in hardening you so this full process plays itself out. How is God's glory more fully displayed that way? Because it allows God's power to be seen. And it results in his name being proclaimed in all the earth. That's what verse 17 says. And in fact, although we're used to talking about ten plagues in Egypt, God actually refers to them as signs. You can see that if you read through the Exodus account. What we know as the ten plagues are in fact ten signs of God's sovereign power. Pharaoh resisted through the full measure of those plagues. Then after he let the Israelites go, he regretted it. He charged after them to bring them back. 
And God finally crushed him and his army at the Red Sea. And God said it all happened so that God's power might be displayed and his name proclaimed far and wide. That was God's purpose in his dealings with Pharaoh. That's what verse 17 says. And the Old Testament goes on to show that God achieved his purpose. Years later, when the Israelites were entering Canaan, they sent spies into the city of Jericho. The spies made contact with a prostitute there called Rahab. And this is what she tells the Israelite spies. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Then she explains why they're so afraid. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, Our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab has not only heard about Israel's victories over Pharaoh and the others, Sihon and Og, she's not only heard about those victories, notice how she has understood those victories. They're the work of the Lord, Israel's God. Because of what God has done against his enemies, Rahab knows he is God in heaven above and earth below. God's dealings with his enemies have accomplished God's goal. Pharaoh was the greatest human power of his day. And because of God's dealings with Pharaoh and others, far away in Jericho, God's power is understood and his name is proclaimed in far away Jericho. And Jericho was not the only place where this happened. The Old Testament gives us other examples. Pagan nations who'd heard all about God's power shown against Pharaoh. And God's actions at the Exodus are regularly mentioned to give reassurance to God's people. Again and again we read, especially in the Psalms, remember what God's capable of. Remember when he showed his power against Pharaoh. In the rest of Scripture, God's dealings with Pharaoh stand like a monument displaying God's glory. At the Exodus, God acted to show mercy to the Israelites and to harden Pharaoh. Those actions worked together to display God's glory. And they illustrate the point that God acts for the sake of his own glory, not only in showing mercy, but also in hardening. 
Does the Bible explain all the complexities of that truth? Does it answer all of our questions? No, it doesn't. But with no apology and no embarrassment, the Bible tells us it is true. And it does not make God unjust. In verse 19, Paul pauses again to mention another objection people might have. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul makes the point that God acts for the sake of his own glory in all his work. A potter doesn't always make the same thing. Every time he sits down at his wheel... He's working with the same kind of clay, same ingredients. But he has different purposes for the clay each time. Sometimes maybe his purpose is to make a mug, sometimes a vase, sometimes a piece of jewelry, whatever. It would never enter our heads to say the clay has a right to argue with the potter. We accept the potter's right to use the clay for his own purposes. But sometimes we want to deny God his right to form his clay for his own purposes. And we are, after all, clay, formed from the dust of the ground. Yes, God has breathed life into us, He has given great dignity to us. We are made in his image. And at the same time, still clay. Created by God for his glory. As human beings, we can ask honest questions of God. Of course we can. But we may not stand in judgment over how God uses his own clay. There's something else for us to see in this passage. God's acts of hardening serve his acts of mercy. What I mean is this. We've seen that God's acts of showing mercy and his acts of hardening combine to bring him glory. But this passage also shows that being glorified through showing mercy is the higher priority for God. His acts of hardening serve his acts of mercy. We've already been given hints of this. For example, we saw that verse 15 contains God's words to Moses. After Moses had said, show me your glory. We saw that in response, God mentions his mercy and compassion. He does not mention his hardening. 
That's the first hint that being glorified through showing mercy is the higher priority for God. The second hint came in verse 17. God's goal in dealing with Pharaoh was to display God's power and have his name proclaimed in the earth. And we saw one outcome of that. The pagan prostitute Rahab heard of God's power. And when we read on, we find she then asked for God's mercy. And she received it. When Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family were saved. In Rahab's case, God's hardening of Pharaoh caused her to fear God and seek his mercy. And God was glorified in showing her mercy. Those are two hints that showing mercy is the higher priority for God. They are only hints. But now we find this truth stated quite clearly for us. Look carefully at verses 22 and 23. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, the human race fell into sin. God could have, at that point, poured out his just wrath and destroyed the human race. But he didn't. And these verses point us to the reason why. Verse 22 says, He bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Think back to Pharaoh. He's an example of this. God was angry with Pharaoh before he ever sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh. He could have destroyed Pharaoh before any of the plagues. But God had a bigger purpose in mind. So the whole course of plagues went ahead. The final race to the Red Sea went ahead ending in the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And verse 23 spells out God's purpose in all of it, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. God's purpose in his dealings with Pharaoh was to display his glory so that the objects of his mercy might know his glory and trust him. And come to receive the mercy he had in store for them. In the exodus from Egypt, God's acts of hardening served his acts of mercy. Now the reason Paul is writing chapter 9 is not because he's particularly interested in Pharaoh. The problem that kicked off chapter 9 is the problem of Israel's unbelief. Paul has used Pharaoh to illustrate a truth. But he wants to apply that truth to the Israelites of his own day. That's what he does in the final verses of this passage. Many of the Jews of Paul's day stand in the position of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. They are hardened in their rejection of God. 
But Paul wants to show that just as Pharaoh's hardening was not random, neither is the hardening of the Jews of his day. It has a greater purpose. That greater purpose is that the Gentiles would receive God's mercy. Look how verse 23 connects to what comes after it. Paul says, what if God did this? Meaning, what if he hardened many of the Jews to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. The New Testament shows that when the apostles preached the good news about Jesus, the majority of the Jews rejected it. And at least part of the reason for that was God's purpose to form a people of God from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The hardening of the Jews forced the apostles to take the message beyond the Jews so that Romans and Africans and Turks and Slavs and Brits could become God's people, his loved ones, children of the living God. God's acts of hardening serve his acts of mercy. Again, does the Bible explain all the complexities of that? No. In this life, we'll never fully understand all that God does. But the Bible assures us he is working to one unified plan. A plan where everything combines for God's glory and for the good of his people, the objects of his mercy. We sometimes talk about letting off steam, meaning sometimes we just feel this need to exert ourselves. We just need to chop up some wood or go for a walk climb up a hill with no particular purpose except to expand energy. Maybe you never get that feeling. But we're all familiar with the idea. If the kids are rowdy, send them out to the park. They can blow off some steam. But you and I need to understand when God hardens and when he brings wrath, He is not letting off steam before he goes back to being merciful again. No. Every ounce of God's hardening and wrath is part of the same unified purpose of God. And all of his hardening and wrath serves the higher priority of showing mercy. God's hardening and his mercy combine perfectly for his glory and 
for the good of his people. Paul has told us that in his day, his own people, the Jews, are largely hardened. So then, has God finished with Israel? Has he cast Israel aside? Look at verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly destroyed. God promises that will not happen to the Jews. Even before Jesus came, God promised through his prophets that only a remnant, a portion of Israel would be saved. That accounts for Israel's widespread rejection of Christ. But it also promises that a remnant will be saved. No nation, no people group has been cast aside by God. England has not been cast aside. Maybe you've listened to this and you thought, God's purpose today must be to harden England. Maybe it looks that way. But still, his mercy is at work. He's still calling individual men and women to repent and believe and receive mercy. Just as he continues to do in Israel. If you have been resisting him, don't try to blame your resistance on God. Romans 10 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Take God at his word. Come and receive his mercy. Put your trust in Jesus' death in your place. And if you're already a Christian, you can be sure God has a purpose in all that he does. Non-Christians love to tell themselves that everything happens for a reason. I hear that all the time. I was in Starbucks in America and I had a little cup that said on the side, everything happens for a reason. But if you're not a Christian, you have no basis for that belief. Unless you believe in a sovereign God, how can you believe everything happens for a reason? You're just blown about by chance and by the actions of other people. But the God of the Bible, the God who is really there, is both sovereign and purposeful. If you have put your trust in him, you are the object of his mercy. And in everything he does, he is working for his own glory and for your good. In a moment or two, we're going to remember the greatest thing he has done for his glory and our good. We're going to remember the cross. 
But before we come to this bread and wine, our next song reminds us we can only come because of God's freely given mercy and grace. Let's sing together only by grace.